The sermon text this morning is Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Let me read uh, beginning in verse 11, just to see the unfolding argument of the passage. I'll be preaching on verses 14 and 15. Hear God's word. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the gospel which has been preached to us, which is preached to us. Lord, we ask you that it would be to us glad tidings of good things week by week and that we would be like those who rejoice to hear it, especially today. We thank you. We thank you for this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, something that is always true of the Apostle Paul, but uh, which is no less true in Romans chapter 10 is uh, the unfolding of an argument. Uh, And it's fascinating to see how uh, the line of thought is carried through. In fact, uh, you might have thought and I would have initially had the same thought. Why not include verses 16 and 17 along with verses 14 and 15? Do they do they not contain the same thought? Well, As a matter of fact, they do not. They contain something in addition to what is said in verses 14 uh, and 15. Uh, And I think it's a good rule. uh, The one you you might say I don't follow too well. One thought per sermon. Uh, So verses 14 and 15 contain the next thought and thus the next sermon. And we'll come to the next thought in God's uh, timing in the next sermon. Well, the main the main line of thought uh, in Romans chapter 10 gets at the heart of the gospel itself. And as I was emphasizing last time, how the gospel is to be offered, how the gospel is to be preached, that that's the burden you see that Jesus lays upon the apostles uh, in the passages we read at the end of Mark and the beginning of Luke. It's not just what the gospel is, but it's it's. What we're to do with the gospel, what the church is commissioned to do with the gospel. The gospel is to preach the gospel. The the church, I mean, is to preach the gospel. The church is to offer salvation and it is to make plain. It is to make public the good news for sinners, how it is they are saved. That's what the gospel is. That's what makes it good news. And the answer that the gospel gives, which is in keeping with the method that it is offered, is by faith alone. Salvation is a gift which cannot be earned by man. You see, that's the message of the law. Do this and live. But the message of faith which we preach is that if a man believes with his heart and confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, he will be saved. That's you see what they were preaching. That's what people were believing. You remember uh, what J. Gresham Machen said about faith. It's not doing but receiving. That's the difference between the, the law way of salvation and the gospel way. Receiving salvation as a gift. And you see, even a child can do that. That's why Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you can't. Well, you can't be saved. Not in childlike ignorance, Machen points out, but in childlike simplicity. A child knows what it is 
to receive a gift, but often the adult is too proud. He will have nothing that he cannot earn, even from God. Well, you see, I'm already beginning to unfold what the next thought is. And the next thought is that of preaching itself, which is what comes out in verses uh, 14 and 15. It's interesting to notice how often this connection comes out, for instance, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. This is what the apostle says. And you notice the same emphasis that that is a passage, which, by the way, is famous uh, where, where Paul lays out what the gospel is. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. That is of first importance. And then he lays out the central concerns of the gospel. But before that, notice what he says, how it is the gospel came to them. Moreover, brethren, verses one and two, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice the order. The gospel which I preached, number one, you received, number two. That is, the gospel offer was made by the Apostle Paul. It was declared, it was preached, and the Corinthians received the gospel offer. They received the gift of salvation. Yes, and he says, not only did they do so, but they were standing in that very grace to this day. Still, they believed the gospel which he preached. The gospel doesn't just save you for a time. It saves you even now, he's he's saying. By which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The thought is, there are two sides to this. The word I preached to you, the preaching of the gospel, the gospel offer, the summons to believe and be saved, number one. And number two, there is the side of faith by which we receive and accept and rest in that offer. And if we do that, then we are saved. And, of course, Paul is saying, if we really don't believe it after all in the end, then it does not save us. Well, it's the same thought in Romans chapter 10. And it's the same thought that you will find often in the Apostle Paul. He's told us the way of salvation is the way of faith, the righteousness of faith, the word of faith that we preach. And that way, verses 11 through 13, is a way which is open to all. It is to be offered to all. Not only some, but all. But that ultimately leads to this question. And it's a question which Paul asks here. It's the next thought. And that is, if salvation occurs when someone is made to call upon the name of the Lord and to believe on him, how does one ever come into this position of calling upon the Lord and being saved? And that is the logic of the passage before us. Again, verses 11 through 13 tells us whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how does that ever come to pass? Just think of that. How is a man made to call upon the Lord? Does it just happen when a man feels the need of his salvation and in some general way he calls out to God, a God he does not know? Is that salvation? Not at all, Paul says. Salvation is a real transaction that occurs between the soul of man and God himself. And the initiative begins with God. And it occurs when a man hears the gospel. That's where the transaction begins. 
when it is preached to him, when salvation is really offered to him and he hears it and he receives it gladly. God offers it to him. He receives it and he's saved. That's the transaction I'm talking about. Not a man crying out to a God he doesn't know. But God crying out to a God he has come to know by means of the preaching. And how happy is that man? That's why I say he not only receives it, but he receives it gladly. He's made to say, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel to me and brought good news of glad tidings. It is in that sense that we are to understand the passage before us. You notice the series of four questions. How shall they call on him or uh, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach Unless they are sent. How does anyone ever come to the place where he is enabled savingly to call upon the name of the Lord? And you say to me, Pastor, are you really are you really going to preach another sermon on preaching? And uh, and the answer is yes, I am. And the reason I am is because the Apostle Paul does so here, not because he gloried. In his own preaching, it's very clear that he didn't. And, and I can only say I feel, uh, I feel terrible about my preaching. So does the Apostle Paul. It isn't the man glorying in his preaching. It's the man glorying in the gospel. And the man who glories in the way that the gospel is made known. It's a display of human weakness always. And yet, amazingly, it becomes to guilty sinners the power of God unto salvation. You see, as soon as you say... That a man is saved by faith alone. Salvation is by faith and by nothing else. You have to ask the next question, and that is, how did he ever come by such faith? And that leads us inevitably to the preaching. And by the way, the next thought, in case you thought verses 14 through 17 contain the same thought, which I would have thought too. The next question is, why do some not believe? And that's verses 16 and 17. And we'll look at that in due course. But for now, we ask the question, how is it that people come into the place of believing? And and the simple answer is the gospel is made known to them. And the way that it is made known to them is by the preaching. And so the first point that I would make is that this is God's method, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says. And that is exactly the apostle's point here. This is God's method. It isn't. I think it is fair to say man's method. It isn't man's preferred method, but it is God's preferred method. And it is for that reason that we need, yes, even sermons on preaching. Preaching the gospel is God's method for saving sinners. That is how I would summarize the passage before us. The preaching of the gospel. It's his preferred method. I won't say it's his only method, but it's his preferred. It's his usual method of making the gospel known god is the great king and he's publishing terms of peace unto men and he sends forth his heralds to herald that message be at peace with god be reconciled to god he's offering you peace will you accept it will you consent to be saved in this way something i tell my children and something i hope is true in the case of your own children, you fathers and you mothers, is that you have grown up with the sound of the gospel in your ears. I didn't grow up in that way, but you have. I can say that to my children. I think I can say that to all the children in this church. That is an enormous privilege. It's also an enormous responsibility. 
But it is primarily a privilege to have always had the sound of the gospel in your ears. And how easy it should be then to believe. Now, I won't say that's the same thing as preaching, but it's the same exact idea. Preaching is filling the ears with the sound of the gospel. That does not guarantee salvation. But it is what makes salvation possible. It's what leads to faith. When a man hears the gospel, so he is enabled to believe the gospel. Preaching is therefore, I would say, a very suitable method. If it's God's method and God is all wise, can we not see his wisdom in choosing preaching? Again, let me be clear. I won't say it's the only one. A man can be saved in many ways. Very often it's, well, as Augustine said, let me remind you mothers, it's by the prayers of his mother. I think J. Gresham Machen might have said the same thing. But here is the main one, the preaching of the gospel. And do you see why that's so? Do you see the suitableness of this method? It's suitable because it uh, it suits men's needs. It meets them where they are. You see, Paul doesn't say in verse 17 that faith comes by reading. I am speaking to a very educated crowd, a very educated uh, in a very educated age. We learn to read at a very young age. We do lots of reading. I love to read sermons, by the way. But that isn't what Paul says. He says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I'm preaching verse 17 in advance, but you understand the point I'm making. Why is that the case? Because it uh, it meets men where they are. And do you realize that for the vast majority of history and even in many places today, most people cannot read. But here is what Paul is saying. You don't need any learning. You don't need any education. You don't need to be enrolled in the best schools to be saved. That's how philosophy works. But that isn't how preaching works. The most unlearned man can hear of Christ and be saved in this way. And so faith comes by hearing. You see, I was at pains last time to stress the universal offer of the gospel. And what is better suited to convey this message to all than preaching. If the gospel is really good news for all, then the medium by which that good news is made known must be suited to all. Do you see that it's what God always used in the Bible? Always. You find Moses preaching to the Israelites. I won't say he was popular. I won't say any of these men were popular, but I will say you find them preaching. You will always find them preaching. The prophets after him preaching. It was the main ministry of John the Baptist. I know he's called John the Baptist. I wonder if he should have been called John the preacher. He was primarily a voice crying in the wilderness. He was preaching to men. He was found preaching in the wilderness. And what a preacher he was, though it cost him his life. And do you know that Jesus was also a preacher? In the Gospels, we find him preaching. Mark chapter 1, verse 38. By the way of John, it said, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for remission of sins. Likewise, Jesus, we find him preaching in those early chapters of the Gospels. And he says this, let us go and preach in the next towns that I may preach there also. For this purpose, I have come forth. He came forth from the Father. To preach the gospel. To make it known. And it was the task that he then gave his apostles. As we saw 
in Mark chapter 16 and Acts chapter 1, having gone to the Father just before then, he says, I send you into the world to preach the gospel, to publish the good news of glad tidings, to make it known to all. Tell every creature, here is good news for him. This is the thing you ought to devote yourselves to, to make the good news known to any and to all who would listen. And that's the whole story of Acts. And can we not thank God for his providence that we're reading Romans chapter 10 in line with Acts in the evening. Another thing that we find in the New Testament are important defenses of this method by the apostles. And I would place Romans chapter 10 verses 14 through 17 uh, in that category. He's not just commending preaching, he's defending it. Uh, especially uh, it's uh, we find this in first Corinthians chapters one and two. The truth is what we find in those two chapters and we find it as well in Romans chapter one, Romans chapter 10. It's not just the gospel, but the preaching of the gospel. That's the power of God to save. Romans or first Corinthians chapter one, verse 17 For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached or simply the foolishness of preaching. To save those who believe. We find the same thing. I won't read it at the beginning of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Paul talks about not just the, the gospel being the power of God to save. But that fact making him so eager to preach it. To make it known. So that through the preaching the power of God to save would occur in the lives of his hearers. But let us see that it has never been popular. You say, well, preaching isn't popular today. I won't deny it. But let us see that has always been the case, which is why it needed to be defended even in the days of the apostles. People had grown accustomed, for instance, in, in, the, in the age of the Greeks to listen to the orators, the philosophers. That's what they wanted. And Paul said, well, you won't get that from me. And he was despised for that as he came a simple preacher of the gospel and a suffering servant. It's never been popular. And for this reason, man has not only always rejected it as a method, but man, and I'm including Christians in this, has always sought to devise something better. Something better suited in his own wisdom to convey the truths of the gospel. Something better suited in his own wisdom to uh, garner a reception among men. Well, I won't deny that the church today is succeeding in gathering men, but I would Query whether it is succeeding in making men Christians. This is why men reject it. Why men hate it. Why they hate the preaching. Not simply because of what the gospel is. But because of how it's presented to them. Through the weakness of preaching. It's almost insulting to the pride of man. You see how it was insulting to the pride of of those in the first century, and Paul dealt with that in First Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read a little more of that to you. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. You see, they were stumbling not just 
at the message, but at the preaching itself. They wanted something more, something better, something better suited to satisfy their carnality. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God appears weak on the cross. He appears foolish in the method of preaching. And yet here is the very power of God to save. And yet they were saying, well, let me read a little more. Paul concedes it. He says in chapter two. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come in the excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Oh, it was a spectacle of weakness, something contemptible. And that's what they were saying. But you see, he owns it. It was insulting to their intelligence, they were saying. Or in an age like our own, in an age of flimsy sentimentalism, we might say it demands too much of their intelligence, and people won't stand for that either. You see, the philosophy was was more lofty. The preaching wasn't lofty enough in the first century. Now the preaching, uh, it, it seems, is too lofty in the case of many. People reject the doctrines found in the preaching, even if they're found in the Bible. And they insist on something which appeals more to the emotions. Or in other ages, we find liturgies, elaborate liturgies taking place of the preaching. That's what was happening in the age of the Reformation. And the Reformers once again brought back the word of God through the preaching. Anything but preaching, that's what I'm saying. You you don't just find that in the world, you find that in the church. Do we understand why this is so? Why... Not just the gospel, but the preaching of the gospel has to be defended by the church in every age. It's because there is nothing pleasing to the natural man in the preaching. Nothing pleasing in having one as weak as he appeal to him as the voice of God. And yet, the Apostle Paul says, and I say with him, there is nothing so suited to save Man in his need and in his weakness, even the preacher himself as the preaching for, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and following, how how will they call upon him unless they've heard and how will they hear without a preacher and so on? Or as Paul goes on, uh, let me conclude the reading from first Corinthians chapter two and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith. You see, faith is the issue here, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I am saying there is nothing so suited to save man in all of his pride and yet all of his weakness as the preaching and all of his need. Do you see why this is God's method? It's because it is calculated to abase the pride of man. That's the point. And then because it's the only way to understand the need for faith if man is to be saved. In order to have faith, he needs someone to preach to him. He needs someone to open up the gospel to him and make make things clear. Do you remember the Ethiopian and Philip? Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? He was reading the gospel. He was reading Isaiah 53. He said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone opens this passage up to me? And you see, the need of the Ethiopian is the need of every man. He needs the gospel to be made plain to him, even if it's right there before his very eyes. Even if he's able to read it for himself. 
He needs someone to preach to him. And so that is what the preaching is and what it's meant to be. It's the way of salvation made plain to sinners. It's a giving to them an understanding they did not have or could not have on their own. And having thus made it plain on hearing the gospel, a man is enabled, along with the Ethiopian, to believe the gospel unto salvation. But as the next point, notice certain characteristics of preaching. True preaching. One is that it's good news. That's the whole emphasis upon uh, the preaching here. It's the preaching of the gospel. Upon bringing glad tidings of good things. Of course, we know the mark of the false prophet is that he proclaims peace, peace when there is no peace. That is the mark of every false gospel. It's good news based upon lies. And so it's equally clear that the gospel he preaches must be the one and only gospel, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, that is salvation in Jesus alone. In that sense, you see another thing we can say about true preaching is that, and I've read this already, but let me make it plain here. The man preaches not himself, but Christ. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I preach not myself, but Jesus Christ. We preach Christ crucified, not ourselves. That's the good news he is to preach. That's what he means when he says to men, here is good news for you. It isn't something I've done for you. It's something I'm offering to you in the name of Jesus. That anyone who calls upon him will be saved. And the preacher is someone who is to preach that and nothing else. You see, the temptation of the preacher is always to move on to something else. To think, well, we've got the gospel, now we can move on. To think somehow we've outgrown our need for the gospel. I hope to say something about this in a future sermon, perhaps next week. Why it is the Christian needs the gospel, always. But the moment a preacher has done this... The moment he ceased to bring glad tidings of good things to those who, who hear his preaching, he ceased to be a true preacher. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it in this way. He says the business of the preacher is to go on repeating the message, the gospel, the evangel. It's the only thing he has to say, and he has to go on saying it. So there's no way to conceive of preaching apart from what is preached, the message. And yet at the same time, Understanding that message will also inform our view of what preaching is, what is occurring in the preaching. It is the very power of the gospel itself made available to us. The gospel becomes powerful to save in the preaching, not there only. Don't say that I said that I didn't say that, but I'm saying that it does occur there and it does occur there primarily. The way that God Give sinners access to that power is by the preaching. Why? Because it is there that faith becomes possible. It is there that the Holy Spirit works faith in the heart of a sinner. You say, even me, a Christian who's been born again? Yes, even you. Lord's Day by Lord's Day, you stand in need of faith. And because this is so, another characteristic of true preaching is that there's an element of authority and of power. 
You see, it isn't just a man talking. The apostle says that in Second Corinthians or First Corinthians chapter four. He says the kingdom of God isn't a matter of talk, but of power. And, and I think he's talking about the preaching there. And, and I know he's talking about it in First Thessalonians chapter one, verse five, when he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. The gospel that we preached was powerful to save. It was powerful in the Holy Spirit. It was powerful to give you assurance. What is preaching? Preaching is the power of God to save brought to bear upon the sinner. It is God dealing with the sinner and bringing forth faith from his soul. There is an element of attack. It isn't just a polite discourse. But here is God dealing with us in the true preaching. He's changing us by his power. He's making, as Paul says in a passage we read earlier, he's making our faith rest not on human wisdom, but on his divine power. We must also see that all true preachers are sent. How will they go unless they're sent, the apostle says? Or how should they preach unless they're sent? This is something I hope to unfold tonight. So I'll have much more to say about Paul and Barnabas being sent. Even though they were apostles, they waited for the commission from the church. There's something authorized about preaching, and this condemns uh, the lay preachers of our own age. This is not something anyone can do. There is a necessity which is laid upon him both by God in the internal call and by the church in the external call. And with this necessity laid upon him, he is compelled to the task and an awful woe lays upon him if he does not preach The gospel, we find the Apostle Paul saying and also quoting Jeremiah. Paul says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So you see, it's not just that they're sent. It's that in being sent, there is necessity. But there is also ultimately an element of mystery in all true preaching. One of the things that I I could reflect upon and you could reflect upon and that is why are some sermons so wonderfully blessed and others not? In some cases, that seed is sown in the heart and the, and the seed goes deep and it bears rich fruit almost immediately. At other times, the words simply fall to the ground. Well, that's just a microcosm of preaching seen in a more general sense. It's the aroma of life to some, of death to others. Who can understand it? And after all, who is sufficient for these things? Once we realize that's what the true preaching is, a man who's sent by God to make the gospel known. But the amazing thing, though we do not understand it, and that's what I mean when I say there's an element of mystery in all true preaching. The amazing thing, and it's the only thing that, uh, that comforts me and causes me to go on, and I hope that causes you to go on with me, is that God is able to use my weakness and he's able to use the weakness of you. And he's able to use the weakness of all Christians to display his power. Isn't that the most amazing thing? In fact, he says, that's my preferred method. I don't use the great and the wise of the age. And if I do, I'll utterly humble them first, as he did with the Apostle Paul. I can only use a humble servant. I can only use a man who knows his weakness. I can't use a proud man. That's something... The mystery of preaching isn't something we understand, but it's something that we know. It's something that we experience week by week. The fact that the preaching is, yes, it's changing us amazingly. Though we don't understand it. My final point is the need for preaching. 
We need preaching, beloved. Yes, the natural man will always despise the preaching. In your flesh, you'll say the thing's boring. When will it end? Is the man ever going to stop talking? But in the inner man, there is something really to delight in, to lay hold of, and to grow. And yet we live in an age in which this has been utterly rejected. The church has moved on from preaching, or the preaching which is offered does not uh, comport with the characteristics I just described. And so I would say in many cases it doesn't even deserve to be called preaching. Uh, or listen, I had thought about pulling Lloyd-Jones preaching and preacher off the, uh, preachers off the shelf, uh, but I found in one of his sermons uh, a good enough summary of what he says in that book, and I thought I would share that with you. He says, we're living in days when preaching is not as popular as it once was, and when people do not believe in it as they once did. You see, people don't believe in preaching. They used to, but they don't anymore. We've got to face that, he says. We're living in an age which talks a lot about reading, but it's perfectly clear that preaching's at a discount. At the present time, there's undoubtedly a reaction against the historic preaching of the Christian church. People will only tolerate 10, 15, or 20-minute addresses or remarks which are not even called sermons. That is the modern attitude, and I believe it is a very serious matter. It is part of the whole general reaction of modern men and women, which affects even the people of God. There is this tendency to discount preaching, and we want to read quietly at leisure and so on. So it seems to me to be important that we should realize that the Bible puts a great emphasis upon preaching. Preaching, after all, is that which has been ordained by God. It is he who has ordained that by the foolishness of preaching, the thing preached, to save them that believe. And I agree with him. We live in an age that puts preaching at a discount. And I'm saying, though I'm preaching to a church, in that sense I could say I'm preaching to the choir that does believe this. But even to you, I would urge the need for preaching. The need for preaching is made clear once you see the need for faith. We are all, in a sense, you see, like that Ethiopian. I've already said that. Let me say it again. All of us. How can we understand? That is, how can we have faith unless someone guides us in this right way? You know, one of the joys to me in handing out these McShane readers is some of you begin to text me and you say, you know, I don't understand that passage, Pastor. Well, I love that you're, you're reading through the Bibles. I love that you admit you don't understand it. So often my reply is, you know, I, I don't understand it either. Uh, don't ever think that I understand the whole Bible. It's the great joy of preaching is I'm made to understand it when I prepare a sermon, and so are you. We, we come to an understanding together of the Bible, of the whole Bible. How can we have faith unless someone guides us in the right way? As the Ethiopian says, Thomas Watson, the great end of the word preached is to bring us to a settlement in religion. That is the grand design of preaching, not only for the enlightening, but also the establishing of souls, not only to guide them in the right way, but to keep them in it. Yes, we'll always need someone to preach to us. Do we see that if we are called upon to believe on him and to call upon him, then we need to know all about him? We need to know everything about him we possibly can. We should always be thankful when someone tells us about Jesus Christ. We need men who are sent from God to fill our ears with the good news of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. Always. You never get past this. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And so we always need the preaching. You see, involved in this is our understanding of what faith is. Faith is trust. 
Faith is confidence. Faith is resting in another. And if that's what faith is, if faith is my confidence and my trust in someone else, even Jesus Christ, then the more we come to know about him, the more easy and the more natural it will be for us to place our faith, that is, our trust in him. J. Gresham Machen, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we trust him. We also see here, though I said earlier, I'd hope to say more about this, though. I will say, or at least I thought I did. The ultimate warrant for missions or for evangelism. You see, Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 is rightly the classic text for worldwide missions. How else will people know unless someone tells them if this if the gospel uh, tells a man that if he calls upon the Lord, he'll be saved. Well, then people need to know that they need to know that they're perishing. And unless someone tells them, well, then they'll perish. How else can they be saved unless someone tells them? You see, this is the burden which every true evangelist and every true missionary feels in his heart. Look at these poor lost souls perishing in sin. They need someone to tell them. Will anyone tell them of their plight? Will anyone tell them how easily they might be saved if only they would call upon the name of the Lord? The question which is sometimes asked, and this is something I thought I might say a great deal more about. I I want to be brief on this point. But what of those who have never heard the gospel? I could preach a whole sermon on that. And that's what people want to know about, especially in a reform setting. Well, you're saying go out and preach the gospel. What about those who never heard it? It's amazing, amazing the answers that some people sometimes give. Well, if they never heard it, well, then they're saved. Or, or if they've never heard it, then they'll be saved by their works which in either case is to deny either God's sovereignty or the gospel itself. And it also proves too much because it basically leaves us in a position where they'd be better off if we didn't preach to them. No, the actual position is this. People are perishing. People need to hear the gospel. And by the way, those who are saved need to hear the gospel too. I'm going to keep saying that as well. So here's my answer. What of those who never heard the gospel? Well, for now, I would say, number one, let us have a burden for them. But number two, let us see that God's usual method of saving sinners is by calling them to himself effectually by the gospel preaching. And so if he does not call someone by the preaching, if he perishes without the sound of the gospel in his ears, there is good reason to believe that God in his sovereignty was pleased to pass by that person. But as a third answer, our confession says In the chapter on effectual calling, elect infants, you see there's an instance. What about those who were too young to ever hear the gospel? Or I I talked about the hearing and not the reading. Yes, but some people cannot hear. Or some people die in pagan lands. There are so many ways we could put this, but listen to the confession's answer. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So are all other elect persons who are who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. You see, we don't want to go too far and say that God is bound to this method. This is his usual method, but he can regenerate a sinner anywhere in any way that he pleases. He can work saving faith in the heart of a sinner apart from the preaching. Yes, he can do that. And he does do that. And so ultimately we appeal to his sovereignty and we say we do not know. 
That's the ultimate answer. But my great interest as I close is that we would all see the need for preaching and for preachers, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, for preaching and for preachers, to see that nothing can ever replace it, for this is God's method. We've never so progressed as a civilization that we've outgrown our need for preaching or found something better. Along with Paul, seeing the need for saving faith, we may ask, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? And is it possible, I ask, that we have here the great reason the church is as she is today, and that that is, I mean, in a state of alarming and sad unbelief, The one thing the church lacks more than anything else, I mean the American church, is faith. Is it not, I ask, because of the lack of true preaching? Because the church began to look for God's powerful salvation in other ways, rather than in the way he appointed and prescribed in his word, rather than in the way that he has always used? Is there any other explanation for the sad state of unbelief in the church today than the lack of preaching? For how else? Did the church ever come by faith, if not in this way? And do we see that on the other side? Whenever the church is in a sad state of decline, that God always revives her, if and when he does, always by preaching, always. There is not a single exception to this in the whole history of the Bible and in the whole history of the church ever since the days of the apostles ended. God always revives the church by preaching. By men like Martin Luther, who was a preacher. Men like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, the Apostle Paul. All of these men were preachers. They were despised in their own age. They were often put to death. And yet they were mighty in the hands of God. Having seen the need, my closing admonition is this. Pray. Let us cry out to God and beg him for preachers and for preaching. If faith be our goal, is faith your goal? Do you long to see faith flourishing in your own heart? Do you long to see the church once again being in a state of faith? Pray for preaching and for preachers. Pray for seminaries. Pray that the seminaries once more might be full of men who want to preach. Not just academics, but men who want to preach. And yes... Two, that they might be full of teachers who know how to preach, not just men with PhDs. And pray for those who have already set about the work. For you know, if the preaching you hear does not quite meet the standard I've set forth, and I won't deny that it does, or I won't deny that it doesn't, I mean, then there's only one thing to do. You ought to pray for your preacher. Pray that God would supply to his church preaching through the mouth of Of his appointed preacher whom he has sent. Pray for the very kind of preaching that he promises in his word. That is not the kind which delights the ears and satisfies the senses. I don't mean that. I mean simply this. The kind of preaching which inspires faith. The kind of preaching which cultivates faith in the heart of the soul. Faith in Jesus Christ. 
Faith in God the Father. Faith in the Holy Spirit. And then when we have heard such preaching, well then I say, let us all say together and let us rejoice in seeing how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. That is, let us thank God for the preaching of the gospel. Amen. And let us come to the table together.